Today on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. Evidence-based medicine is considered scientific. What does scientific means? It means that it is trying to be objective. It is trying to get rid of people and opinions. It's trying to give the truth. And if you actually know what science is about, such people as Popper and what's called falsifiability, a study never says what something is. It says what something can be falsified as not true. So you're not actually getting the truth. You're getting more and more things that aren't true, so to speak, and what's going on. I think it's important to always realize that there is this subjective part to it. Hello, hello. I'm your co-host for today, Dr. Carrie Jones, and I am so excited to have on Dr. Alan Sussman. He has over 30 years as a board-certified endocrinologist, researcher, and professor. He's also the author of Saving the Art of Medicine. Now, given his vast years as a researcher and an endocrinologist, of course, I had to get in there and pick his brain. We talked all things research. We talked about guidelines. We talked about placebo effect. We talked about relative risk versus absolute risk. And then of course, we talked about his book, Saving the Art of Medicine, as he went from an extremely conventional background into now more into the complementary and alternative and how that's worked for him. So being able to talk to him about his vast experience and all the studies that he's been a part of, plus his view on medicine and his view on research with examples was really eye-opening and honestly, just a lot of fun. So I hope you really enjoy this podcast and even pick up the book, Getting to Know Dr. Alan Sussman and Saving the Art of Medicine. Before we get started though, I wanna talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast. And that of course, are supplements. There is a lot of confusion around supplements and you only wanna take the best quality that uses top tier certified manufacturers and most importantly, do third-party independent testing to make sure what's on the label is in the capsule. That's why I've teamed up with New Ethics Formulations as their chief medical officer. The team already had a strong history in the supplement world, but started the company to really focus on bettering your health and helping to enhance your physique or performance goals. I'm excited to help them continue to focus on the endocrine system and hormones as it relates to glucose, thyroid, estrogen, and even your gut microbiome. Right now, you can get 20% off one order using code DRJONES20 at newethics.com. That's drjones20 at newethics.com today. Now, let's get on with the show. Dr. Alan Sussman, welcome to the Root Cause Medicine podcast. I am so excited to interview you today, having just read your book this weekend, actually. And I really want to talk to you, first of all, about how you got into medicine in general and then the direction you moved into with the heartfelt approach, the alternative approach. But also, I want to pick your brain on all the clinical studies that you've done and some of the questions that have come up for me around studies and bias and outcome reporting and the things, again, that you mentioned in your book. I just want to welcome you to the show. Thanks a lot, Carrie. I'm glad to be here and look forward to our discussion. Let's just kick off with the first thing. How did you even get into this in the first place? For people who are listening, maybe they haven't picked up or read your book, what got you from full-on clinician all the way into researcher and then ending with just the way you map it out in your book and talking to alternative 
complementary and alternative medicine, which of course I am a huge fan of, and the heartfelt approach that you take with patients. What was that journey like? In general, the book that I wrote is a legacy. And I felt it was important to write it because my patients asked me to write it. I had a very close relationship with them, and that was the most important part. I do come from a family where my dad was a general practitioner. I come from a medical background, but I initially was more interested in research than I was in practice. When I finally decided to go to medical school and saw what that was like, I realized I was more interested in the relationship part of it. But I have a very strong scientific background, and I had a research company, a clinical research company, and did many different studies, hundreds of them actually in the group that I was with. And that was important too, but there's a balance. And part of the reason I wrote the book is I want there to be a rebalance of what's going on right now. Yes, that I can attest to, absolutely. Speaking of the clinical studies, let's kick off with that. You talk a lot in general, and I should say, if anyone has spent any time on social media, you will see the words evidence-based. I will see practitioners devoutly saying, I'm evidence-based, I'm only evidence-based. And a mentor of mine says, actually, I prefer the term evidence-led because the evidence seems to be changing all often, <laughs> all the freaking time, depending. Let's start with that, being an evidence-based medicine, the advantages and disadvantages you saw and see given your experience. The term evidence-based medicine has only been around for about 30 years. Scientific medicine has only been around for about 100 years. Science has become more and more important in our life, as we all know, and we all live better with science. But is there more to life than science? And I'm hoping everyone feels, yes, for sure there is. And when I look at evidence-based medicine, I like the terminology of evidence-led I write, again, based saying is, this is the answer. It's in here. It's based on this. And lead is a direction. It's a guideline. And in fact, when you look at studies, what do they do with them? They group them together, and then they come up with guidelines. Now, the important thing to understand about guidelines are they're not the truth. They're a path. They're somewhere to approach what's going on. And it's important to realize that there are other ways of going. There are other paths. And that's where it's important for the patient to be aware of what they are about, what they are interested in, how they look at it. And they're allowed to question what's going on. Because actually the evidence-based medicine, as so-called, is continually being questioned. It's always being changed. In fact, one of the stories that I give is when I see patients and I would talk to them about hypercholesterolemia, about fats and lipids and cardiovascular disease, and do I need to be on a medication or shouldn't I be on a medication? Is it just weight loss? And then you try to give evidence for why you're saying what you're doing. If you give enough evidence, I would eventually have the patients looking at me cross-eyed. <laughs> and I could see that I was not only losing them, I was completely confusing them because there isn't just one direction to go in. At that point, what I would say is I got some very good news for you. Most of what I'm saying right now will change in the next five years, but what will continue to be will be our relationship. Yeah, I love that you said that about guidelines. I have found, and I don't know if this is how it's taught or been taught, 
that guidelines have been treated as the holy grail. If you don't follow the guidelines, you are not following medicine. You could be at risk for your license or a lawsuit or even colleague to colleague. I've seen practitioners, oh, you're not following guidelines. You didn't follow guidelines with that patient. You're going to get in trouble. And I love that you said it's a group of evidence studies, based studies, pulled together, best interest, but it is one of the paths. And the person sitting in front of you, that may not be the path for them. And I appreciate that. Yes. And it has to even be understood that evidence-based medicine is considered scientific. What does scientific means? It means that it is trying to be objective. It is trying to get rid of people and opinions. It's trying to give the truth. And if you actually know what science is about, such people as Popper and what's called falsifiability, a study never says what something is. It says what something can be falsified as not true. So you're not actually getting the truth. You're getting more and more things that aren't true, so to speak, and what's going on. I think it's important to always realize that there is this subjective part to it, particularly when you say guidelines. How are guidelines made? They're made by getting a group of experts together. Important point to realize, these are all human beings. They're all subjective. Most of them come from very good intentions of what's going on. Perhaps not all. Some might even get deluded in terms of that they're feeling it's a certain direction that's the only way to go and not looking at a bigger picture with it. The guidelines are made from people and doctors and experts that are human beings, but shouldn't be taken as gospel. You do mention biases, speaking of human beings. With all your years of clinical research experience, talk about some of the top biases that we, maybe just someone like myself, I'm not in the research world, have never been in the research world. What are the top biases that tend to occur in studies that maybe the public wouldn't know about? When I look at the top, maybe what is the top bias is just the way studies get reported. Mm -hmm. If the study doesn't show what you want, why publish it? There is a bias to publish towards what you are looking for. Plus, even when you're designing a study, you're trying to roll the dice in your favor, which means that you are using some biases of what you want to expect on the way you do something. It would almost seem foolish. You would say, I'm going to do it in a way that I don't think I'm going to get what I want. No, you're always going to try to get what you want. That is a tremendous bias. And in this world of biases, the story that I'm most fond of is the gorilla suit, which was a psychology study that was done where they had four or five different couples passing a basketball around, about three or four different basketballs. And the observers were told, we want you to tell me exactly how often the basketball is passed. You got to be very attentive to counting to what's going on. And if you're going to be good at being an observer, you're going to be very intent and focused. While this is going on, there is a person in a gorilla suit that's walking right through the middle of the group. And less than 50% of the people, observers, actually saw the gorilla the first time. Amazing. So much for observers. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's right. I think that's why it's important. And I felt that's why I tried to live my life in a more expansive manner. There are many beliefs that I didn't understand, not the direction I'd go into, 
but I would feel I'd have to incorporate them in trying to understand what they are and not just immediately say, no, let's go in another direction. And that's what's important when you're dealing with patients in particular. The patient has their point of view and that's their point of view and it's their body. That always has to be considered and is an important part. Way in the past, there was a sense that the doctors knew everything and all the patient was supposed to do was listen to the doctor and if they didn't understand it, they were supposed to shrug their shoulders and say, well, I guess I just don't understand. Mm -hmm. Now it should be more collaborative and I think it is, but I think it's an important intention to always go into. I would agree. And I feel the world I'm in in medicine, the Root Cause Medicine podcast, the guests that we have on here, I feel are taking that approach pretty to heart. Because of that, the message really gets out there. And I constantly preach to people who are listening that it's okay to expand your healthcare team. It's okay to find somebody who's listening to you, who has your best interest at heart, who wants to take what you're saying is part of the approach versus they know everything. And I think because historically, as you said, that's not been the case and how, well, a lot of things in life are run, but specifically medicine, that it becomes a challenge for people who were thinking to themselves, I didn't know I had an option. I didn't know I could question. I didn't know I could push back against the guidelines. I didn't know I could ask for another opinion or get another practitioner of some sort. I love that you say that and encourage people as well here and of course in your book because the confidence isn't there for people to really to go out and do that. It's not what taught. Yeah. And this is almost like an overriding bias that can happen when a lot of patients and even friends I have will say, oh, what's the information for that? And then we get back to that ugly word that we used before, evidence-based. If it's not evidence-based, it can't be real or you can't put a stamp of approval on it. Even if you talk about some medical systems that have been around for thousands of years, and one would think if something has been around for thousands of years, there has to be some grains of truth and importance in it to last yeah. that long, to go through the gauntlet during that time. And there are some areas you take, for instance, if you take acupuncture or you take different types of body work and you say, what's the evidence base for it? First of all, there is good attempts at it, but it can never be as good because in evidence-based medicine, we always like to compare it to the null situation, to a placebo. And you can really scratch your head when you're doing an acupuncture study of what is truly a placebo. <laughs> to what's going on. Is it that you don't stick them in the skin? You don't have a needle with it? You do a different area? All those things are ways of trying to compare the two, but obviously it's just thinking hard on how to try to make it evidence-based and that there needs to be room for observational studies of having a lot of importance of saying people have done really well. There's enough people that think there's some importance here that we have to look at it. Yeah. Now, the problem then becomes is the placebo effect. What's real? Is it the medicine or is it the mind that's doing that? Now, part of my bias is why not use the mind? It's not a bad place to go, first of all. And there's actually very clear evidence based that even the most precise studies have a degree of placebo effect with them. And they're always trying to eliminate that. As I say, they sometimes, in my mind, eliminating the good part in order to get to their part. One study that I liked 
was one that was lowering cholesterol levels. They had their medication that they're using it, and they were comparing it to a placebo, and it went on for several years, and they did not see the effect that they wanted to. There was some effect, but they said, we think there should have been more of an effect. What they do is that they look at the study again, and they looked at the compliance rate. And lo and behold, the more the person took the medication, the better the results were. How surprising. (laughs) But on the other hand, they then were looking also with better compliance rate of the placebo. The more, the better the compliance rate was of the placebo group, the more profound the effect was too. If you think you're taking a magic pill and it's going to work, that mind is a strong force to contend with. Right. In my book, I talk about placebos. I felt that we need to come with a different name than placebo. It has too much of a negative connotation that if you hear placebo, you're saying, ah, that can't be important. I've coined a acronym TIP, T-I-P, Therapeutic Interventional Potential. I like it. And I think a lot of people, maybe they don't necessarily know, but could relate, have had some sort of similar experience. And I agree with you. I think placebo is quite a negative connotation now, unfortunately, because of studies. Right. And the way studies, as I said, I did hundreds of evidence-based studies and you had placebos. Mm -hmm. And there was always a question saying, all right, this placebo means it's inert. It's not involved physiologically. But ultimately, it might be. And even studies have been done, such as one on irritable bowel syndrome, where the patients are told that they are going to be given a placebo, something that has not been shown to have any physiologic effect that should help them. But they were given that and said, let's see how you do. And they did better still. As I said, and you said too, the mind is a powerful thing. Yes, let's use it. Let's absolutely use it. One of the other things I want to touch on, and I even highlighted this, but I want to make sure I get it right. You wrote, something statistically significant may not be clinically significant. Can you explain that and the importance of knowing that to receive good care? Because statistically significant and clinically significant, I think get interchanged a lot and thrown around a lot. Absolutely. The term significant, statistically significant, is saying that at the end of studies, everything is quantified and you need to have quantified parameters. You look at them and you come up with a mathematical statistical package of how you say whether that has significance. That means it gets to a level of probability that it's unlikely that there's no effect. It isn't, it's the one in the million effect, but it's only in this case, it's one of 20 actually. There must be something here if it goes to that part. That's just purely a rigid model of trying to evaluate whether there's any relevance to the study. But clinical significance, clinical means what's going on out there. What you as the patient is feeling. Are you going to get some benefit from it? What's the chance of that? The study maybe can show something, but what's the chance of you getting something? And if it's on such a minute level of a statistical significance or what the study is trying to say, it might not be relevant to you. It doesn't make any difference. You look at things that are clinically significant that will have more importance to you. But it must always be remembered, anything that's significant does not always mean that's what's going to happen to you. The body is complex. The studies simplify in order to try to make their point. Even then, you shouldn't feel guilty saying, but 
it was even clinically significant, so I should feel better with it. No, it just means that we have a better chance of it working for you and it's worthwhile to try. You even talk about relative risk versus absolute risk. And I like your example. I talk about absolute risk all the time. I run an apprenticeship with learning practitioners and they're constantly wanting to look at that relative risk. And I said, but what's the absolute risk? Your example was if the relative risk is a 50% reduction, which sound, that's a big number, 50%, but your personal absolute risk is 6% then a 50% reduction only takes you to 3%, which is different than somebody who maybe has an absolute risk of, there's a 100% chance you're going to pass away. I'd want that 50% relative risk. <laughs> yeah. I like that example to, to show. I want you to talk about that again and how often that comes up in studies. Again, study versus clinical, relative versus absolute, and how it applies to the person in front of you. Yes. One of the examples I was thinking with that was in osteoporosis. Yeah. And there are agents that were looked at in a very rigid scientific manner and were clearly able to show a reduction in a fracture rate over a period of time. And I remember having to give talks on these new medications. And I suddenly saw one slide where it said, you'll get a 50% reduction in fracture rate if you take this medication and I couldn't finish the lecture because it was, as you said, the chance of the person getting a fracture was about 6% and that meant that it went down to 3%. Another way of saying it to the person, which might've led to a difference in whether they would want the medication, that is you over a three-year period of time, you will have a 3% less chance of getting a fracture compared to someone else as compared to saying you have a 50% chance of decreasing, it, it just leads to a different ball game of the way to look at it. I find the wording of some of these studies, and you point this out, one, it can be really confusing, and two, uses that not always to the benefit of the person, the clinical outcome. For example, you talk about outcome reporting bias. The one that comes to mind, the study that comes to mind, because I do so much in women's health and hormones, is, of course, the Women's Health Initiative, or WHI, which, of course, you mentioned. But I want to touch on that outcome reporting bias because that study, the Women's Health Initiative, as you know, was touted and had been touted for decades, two decades, two plus decades of the end-all, be-all of a randomized controlled study on hormones, women's health, and outcomes. And, oops, that is largely being pulled apart, had a lot of issues. And again, as you said, outcome reporting bias, big time. And unfortunately, I think this is happening and has happened to studies over the years. But in that one in particular, can you touch on? Yes. One first comment is that I think sometimes some of the biggest problem is the media. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the media can get the studies now before physicians can get it very often. Sometimes before it's even officially even reviewed. Yeah. And when you have something in print or something is going to be on the news, you want to have something that's sensational, something that catches people's attention, which means that they are using their own bias, their own sense of slanting the information to do that. And they're dealing with a very large audience. They automatically have more impact than what the study has. And as you said, the Women Health Initiative to me is one of the quintessential studies that shows that where initially it was very reasonable to assume that women during their reproductive years had a lesser incidence of cardiovascular disease compared to males. 
And you'd say, what can that be due to? We do have a different hormonal situation here. <laughs> Maybe that seems like something to consider with it. Then they want to look at it more detailed. And as you said, do an evidence-based study, which is considered the gold standard. The difference in the first part is when you're just observing something that's called an observational study. And you're dealing with very large groups of people and you come up with information. Scientifically, you got to look at the variables in a very rigid way to say what they really mean. So that was the next step. And when they did this with estrogens, first of all, they were using, at that point, not old estrogen therapy, but ones that, that aren't used anymore, that, that could have their own risks and problems with using them. And when they looked at results as they're going through the study, they never even finished the study because they said, wait a minute, we're getting a signal here of more cardiovascular risk of that women who are taking estrogens. When they parse it out, and I don't know if we want to go into details with it, but when you parse it out, it first of all probably only applied to certain groups, not overall to the idea of estrogens, but immediately the point was raised, it's just an estrogen problem. And then one has to think of what about the preparations? Just because one preparation might have some risk, it doesn't mean another doesn't. And then again, as I know you're well aware of, and I mentioned in the book, uh, there's even a study that was done about 15, 20 years later saying if estrogens were used in all these women, they probably would have saved maybe 10, 15,000 lives from cardiovascular disease. So it's a complicated issue. I'm not saying it's easy, but behooves patients if they can at all do it to really try to look at it more critically or really spend the time with the physician to try to understand what is being said and what is not being said and not reacting too quickly to saying, oh, well, I should just get off of this. I think you hit it on the head too when you said the media because they sure took pieces and parts of that study and, and ran with it, which has become the go-to slogan or the go-to information around estrogen or just hormones in general. You know, ask any woman in menopause or perimenopause even now about hormones. And often they will say, oh no, those cause cancer. No, I don't do those, those cause cancer. Because of the fallout of that study, I wanted to talk to you, I wanted to bring it up just because we've been talking about bias, how studies are run, outcome bias, things like that. Since that's a hot one. For this podcast in particular, we have a lot of women who listen and a lot of women who are in menopause, contemplating hormones, perimenopause, contemplating hormones. I think it's good to understand this from several different angles. But given that we've mentioned, there's so much information out there. If you are a practitioner who's listening or even a patient, given the sheer amount of ever-evolving data, what did you do in practice? How did you take all the data coming at you and then apply it to your patient as it was constantly changing? I think the secret words are human relationship. Mm -hmm. It's working with the patient. We are a team together. I'm the one that has maybe more technical expertise in the matter and maybe I'm hopefully have read more on the matter and have the experience of other patients in similar situation. The patient is the patient. They're the one who knows what's going on with them better than I do. And it's both of us recognizing each other in that capacities that we have. And at the end of the day, there needs to be, maybe even from both sides, humility. And from the physician point of view as well, they need to be humble, as we've talked already in this hour about studies and some of their limitations. 
we have to be humble about what we're telling patients about it. We have to realize that there is a balance and we're looking to go along a path. It's To me, it's a dynamic process. You start somewhere and you go along a path and you see how that goes. You might need to go off and go to a different path at some point, but don't look at it. It's maybe not as good to look at the destination as look at the process and see how that's going. Hopefully people will feel okay about that. I know in our modern society, everyone is more interested in answers than process, but I can just tell you it worked well for me to be working with patients and having a relationship with them. They got to know me and I got to know them so you would understand how they would react to some of this information. Oh, I know this is gonna be very hard for you to hear. You probably won't like to do this way. Oh, I think you might be more interested in this approach and not look at it just because that's not my primary answer to them. It's one of the possibilities. I think it's more important to look at possibilities than narrow answers. That's my next question is when reading a book, I wrote down the words listen and trust, but also open mind because the second half really delves into complementary and alternative medicine or holistic medicine, functional medicine, however you would like to call it. And how do we preserve that? How do we bolster that, encourage that in medical schools nowadays or even just in practitioners and patients who are listening? How do we encourage foster the open mind experience? From the patient's point of view, if they have an interest in some of that, they need to advocate for themselves and make it very aware to the physician. This is something they are very interested in. It's something they would like to explore. Now, the physician is allowed to say, in your situation, this is why I don't think it works well. But then again, you say, but we can try it, but let's keep an open mind. And maybe we both, maybe you will need to look at another avenue. As well as the opposite of the physician coming in with their biases of where they think the best way to go is, and still saying they will have an open mind in terms of what other possibilities there are. How can the system increase that is a very good question. And it, it is quite frankly, in my own experience, it is somewhat of a individual experience. There are definitely people out there, they want to just be told. And that's the most important. And they feel better for doing that. And if I spent a lot of time trying to give them different options and keeping an open mind, they're going to say, I have a doctor that isn't going to tell me what to do. That's where the relationship comes in. I don't want to end up on one side or the other side completely. But in general, I think particularly for physicians who are going to be taking care of doctors, they need to be able to have an open mind to other possibilities and not get too squeamish about other options. And also look at it, quite frankly, as a learning experience. I might learn something from this. Yeah. That's actually my next question is what is your, or what would be your advice to practitioners who came to you and said, Dr. Sussman, you have decades of experience. How do I do this? How do I meld evidence-based, evidence-led, all the data coming in with the person in front of me? I think an important part of that is the physician has to be well-balanced. In other words, we're getting a little bit, I think, also into the area of physician burnout. Yes. Oh my gosh. With it. That they get so inundated with so many different parts that they're supposed to be doing. Unfortunately, a lot of it is irrelevant to the most important part of caring for the patient, that they can get burned out and it makes it more difficult for them to be 
open-minded. I go a step back in terms of what needs to happen is the physician needs to be well-balanced, which means that they need to have a life outside of the life of being a doctor. I go back long enough of practicing that I was at a time when you were a doctor, there wasn't enough hours in the day, you had to keep on working. Or when I was an intern and resident, I was in New York City, we were working 120 hours a week. I was on a committee of interns and residents where we were, we went on strike for the 100-hour work week. Imagine that. Wow. And we didn't win that one then. Eventually things did, but I think it's very important for physicians to be balanced. To me, what was important in my life was I got into a meditation practice about 30 years ago. And that has been very important for me to be more aware of what's going on and my own intentions and leading to more focus. And two important words are developing compassion with compassion, not necessarily meaning empathy. We talk about a little bit of a difference between the two of compassion, being very aware of what's going on with another person, but while empathy is actually feeling what the other person is having. And you do have to be careful as a physician about going to feeling what the other person is doing, because then not only might you lose objectivity, it could be overwhelming to you too, as it is to the patient. The compassion is, and then a word that I believe in that might be considered difficult for some people to consider important, and that's mm -hmm. love. There is a sense that you can have a type of love for your patients, for your surroundings. It's a positivity that can radiate out, that can be very important in leading to good medical care. There's a lot of other parts to medical care than what's on the written page or what's going to be on the transcript of what happened that's telling you whether you have done a good job, whether you are caring for the patient, or as Peabody said a hundred years ago, the secret of the care of the patient is in the care. Yes, here, here, I wholeheartedly believe that. The last question I have for you before we get into how people get the book, how they find you, you've mentioned meditation, but I like to also ask people, tell me about your favorite routines. Do you have a morning routine? Do you have the top three things you never skip in your day? What makes Dr. Sussman work? How do you stay healthy and balanced? What are your favorites? My day starts out in my meditation Zen garden. Now, not everyone has that. <laughs> I understand that. And it's really an extraordinary little piece that I have where I spend at least... 20 minutes out there and I have my meditation practices and there's a fountain there with water bubbling out, radiating out through it. And it's bamboo and a red lace maple, which as of today has very little <laughs> red lace part to it. And that leads to me feeling more focused. I also have the benefit right now, which wasn't always true when I was working, of just not letting stress get to me. I think a very important thing that I try to use in my life, sometimes misunderstood, is humor. Even with patients, I would use that. And I think that there's a need for us all to be a little lighthearted at times of what we're going through the world, because there's definitely enough going on to get oppressed by all the yeah. time. I'm looking at ways of trying to not oppress myself. Then I try to surround myself with more positive people, more positive articles, 
not all I do look at other ones, but I definitely will never go just one way towards negative articles of what's wrong here and what's wrong there. There are this websites I love called, there's one called Nice News, <laughs> mentioned in the book too, and it's just a marvelous site of nice news. What's wrong with that? How much nice news is on the front page of a major newspaper these Not days? Not much, unfortunately. I follow a site called We Rate Dogs, and because it's just cute and fun to see dog stories and cute things dogs are doing and dog pictures, and that gives me a lift and a dopamine hit and makes me happy versus just as you said, the unfortunate events that are happening daily all over the world. It's nice to see a cute dog doing cute things. Absolutely. And you could even smile about see? it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, I want to thank you for being on the Root Cause Medicine podcast. His book is Saving the Art of Medicine. Dr. Sussman, where can people find you? There is a website, www.savingtheartofmedicine dot com. And just for your interest, if you look at the website, Saving the Art of Medicine, in the middle of that is actually H-E-A-R-T, is Heart of Medicine. I can be gotten on different bookstores, can order the book. I am on Amazon, but definitely just going to the website will give you all the options as well. But Amazon does have it. Amazing. Like I said, thank you again so much for coming on today, for your wisdom, for your decades of experience, for answering <laughs> all my questions around studies and my frustrations with some of the evidence-based information out there. But of course, we had to bring it home with the heartfelt, open-minded information. Thank you for being on today. Thank you much, Carrie. Enjoyed it. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. We have one quick favor to ask you before you go. If you love today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a five-star review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? Our whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing. And we appreciate it so much. We'll catch you next time on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast.